next week. But I want to talk under the subject straight into community part two, and I want to call this group therapy. I want to call it group therapy. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, you are our strength, our strength that is like no other. And, and so we're glad that that strength is able to just reach to us. And so, Father, uh, we just stretch our hands to thee. No other help that we know. And if you would withdraw yourself from us, whither, Lord, shall we go? So, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's children say amen. amen. And amen. And amen. Uh, there is uh, one particular author who has this incredible statement about the fall. Her name is Ellen White. And here's a comment that she makes about the fall of mankind. She says, after sin, mankind lost the ability to make a decision and then act on it. I want to say that again. In the Garden of Eden, after sin, mankind lost the ability to make a decision and then act on it. Now, for us, that seems kind of surface and kind of silly, but if you're honest and you look back over your life, that really affects you in your everyday life, doesn't it? Uh, let me give some more practical examples to that. You're on the phone with somebody. They say, I have to go. Can I call you back in 10 minutes? Two or three hours go by. You text them. I thought you were going to call me back. And it's not as if they tell you they got busy and were still intending to call you back. They say these words, oh man, I completely forgot. I'm talking about myself now. You've gone up to your children. You've looked at their room. It's a mess. You look at them and say, I need you to please clean your room. Mommy, I will do it after the show. One show goes by. Two shows go by. Three shows go by. And it's almost as if you did not say anything. They said they were going to do it, but yet they did not do it. As a matter of fact, you even remember, you told yourself at the beginning of this year that you were going to go to the gym. You were going to go to the gym. You said it. You testified about it. You declared it. You tweeted it. You Facebooked it. You bought the outfits. You paid for the membership. You said that you were going to go, but yet you still are here. Somebody has gone to the gym and, and you kind of go, you said you were going to lose the weight. You said you were going to change the diet. You said you were going to save more money. You said, you said, you said, you said, you said. We lost the ability to say what we were going to do and actually do it. And so we live in a society now where if we're honest with ourselves, words don't really mean much anymore, do they? Words now have become placeholders. Things to kind of satisfy you, to kind of keep you at bay for a moment. I'll pay you back tomorrow. And while you're waiting for tomorrow, tomorrow never comes because all your words were there to do was to give someone a false sense of hope of something you were actually going to do, but at the end of the day, you just never got it done. And that's the reason the book isn't finished. That's the reason degree isn't finished. That's the reason so many things have not happened because there's a disconnect. Are y'all following me? between our words and our actions. Hence the reason when John chapter one, verse one comes on the scene, it does something different and ought to do something different to us when the Bible declares unapologetically and at the same time poetically, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The Greek word there for word is logos. As a matter of fact, there is no true English or even German equivalent to get a deep enough understanding of this idea of God being the word. Hence the reason one linguist says it is offensive to try to define logos in relation to God. 
It is so deep to understand this meaning about this idea that God is the word. But we understand that John is borrowing from a concept that God is introduces to through his holy word in the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis tells us the seven day creation story and here's six day rather creation story. And here's what it shares with us, that God creates this planet with words. Stay with me. We're going somewhere with this. God doesn't need to build stuff, but the Bible lets us know in Genesis 1 that God would speak and things would happen. Therefore, when you look at the Bible, when it says, and God said, he says, let there be light. And then the Bible says, and then there was light. Y'all remember that? It says, God said, let there be light. And then there was light. So if y'all don't mind, can I brag on our God just for a little bit? I'm going to park here just for a second. Because, you see, when you look at that text, and it's sitting here on the screen, then God said, comma, let there be light. And there was light. The sentence gives you this idea. That God said, let there be light. There was some kind of pause and after God spoke, light then came into existence. Now, I got to keep that real. That would be dope all by itself. Let there be money. And after I say, let there be money, money would appear. So the idea in this text that we think is God spoke and then something happened. If that is your understanding, that it shows our limited view of this idea of God. Because what the Bible is trying to let us know is that God's words don't lead to action. God's words are action. Okay, y'all still not there yet, so let me bring you just a little bit closer in. In other words, how this text really could go, and you can't really articulate this as writing, hence the reason I think now you do have preachers, is when God said, let there be, and his mouth began to form the word light. The molecules of light and the protons and the electrons began to put themselves in order so that by the time he finished this word, the light was already there. Okay, y'all still not there with me uh, because God's words are his actions. That's why there was somebody else who rolls up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've got a servant who's at home and he's sick. Can you go ahead and heal them? And Jesus says, yes, he is healed. The man goes back to the house and he asks a question as he sees his healed man. He says, at what hour was this individual healed? And he begins to understand that it was the same hour that Jesus spoke the words. Why? Because his words are his actions. And there was another person who rolls up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've got a servant who's sick. Jesus is like, cool, I'll come to your house, man. He says, no, Jesus, you don't understand. I'm a man who's under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. And Jesus is like, so what do you want from me? I don't need you at the house. I just need you to speak a word. And my servant is going to be healed because the Bible is letting us know that God's words are his actions. And that is something for somebody here today, because I'd like to suggest to you that there are some of you who are waiting for a move of God, but I want to tell you, you don't need a move of God. You need a word from God because his word is his move. And so instead of asking God to move, ask him to speak, speak into your finances and speak into your marriage and speak into your life and speak into your health and speak into your church because his word is his action. Some of us are so busy looking for God's movement that you don't pause and listen to his word. Because when God speaks a word, that is his action. Are y'all still with me so far? And see, this is why the devil doesn't want you to have a quiet place. 
This is why he doesn't want you to have that place where you can just go. Because what I'm going to find out in life is that even when I don't see him moving, if I hear him speaking, that's just his moving. See, y'all, y'all still not with that thing yet, though. And so I, I remember when, when Pastor Lord, remember when his first precious baby was born? Remember Emily when she was born? And, 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 and she was born premature. Y'all, y'all remember that? Premature. Man, something hit me, y'all. Man, Rubidoux's been through some stuff with their pastors, haven't we? I mean, y'all, listen, and I'm just going to affirm this church for a moment because we got a praying, loving church that supports their pastors, man. Y'all just been with us through, through all kinds of life's problems. And prayed us and helped us through. And so I remember when the, the, the doctors were very clear, uh, you know, brain damage, not going to be able to walk, not going to be able to do all that stuff, might not even live. That's what the doctors were saying. And we as a church were coming together and we were, and we were praying over this thing. And, and Seth had a rule in the hospital. He had a rule in the hospital. No three Hebrew boys prayers. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, the three Hebrews boy prayer is, is the prayer that we think is faith, but it's our way of giving God an out. Lord, you can heal them, but if not, let it be known that we still believe and trust you. And so Seth was like, yo, you cannot pray that prayer up in here. And I'm like, yo, Seth, I'm not understanding that, man, because, you know, I was concerned. I was like, dude, if, if God does something different, what would that do to our faith? This is a journey that our church was going on. If something different happened, man, Seth, we got to allow the but if not prayer. He said, no, Mike, you don't understand. I said, explain to me, why can't we pray the but if not prayer? He said, because I was talking to God and I got a word. I said, man, what what, what are we talking about? You got to work. He said, God told me that my daughter is going to be healed. The problem is her body hadn't caught up to the word yet. Oh, God. Are y'all listening to me? See, when God speaks, it happens. It's just sometimes the rest of creation has not caught up to his word just yet. But his word is his action. And that's why we must understand that we must lean in and know and understand more than anything else in this word, the word of God, because when he speaks, it means he's in the process of doing something. Now, 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 just because I'm down the street, I just want to take a look at a few more buildings before we get back to where we need to go. Uh, We are a church that is known for prophecy. Isn't that true? Where a church is known for prophecy. And sometimes I think people misunderstand me when I say, hey, we misunderstand. We put all this emphasis in prophecy. The problem isn't the prophecy. It's the problem is as we look at what prophecy is for. See, you think prophecy is there to get you ready simply for the last days. Let me tell you something right now. If all you had was an intimate walk with Jesus and you had no idea about Daniel and Revelation and what was going to happen in the end, you could still make it. Because Jesus says something, I have hidden, my father has hidden nothing from me, and I will not hide anything from you. And he says, I will reveal to you the secret things that my father has told me. And so therefore, if you never understood anything about prophecy, but were walking closely with Jesus, as things were happening, God's going to take you through. So then the question must be, then what, what, what did God give us prophecy for? Like, what is the point of that? If Jesus can just take me through it, what is the point of that? Prophecy is God's way of trying to tell you you can trust him. That's all prophecy is about. Because God is saying this. I told you that kingdom was going to fall. And the kingdom fell, didn't it? Therefore, you can trust when I say something. 
So if you can trust that when I say the kingdom's going to fall, the kingdom's going to fall, then when I tell you this is going to happen in your life, that you need to leave that one alone, that you need to go this career, that you need to do this and do that, if you can trust the prophecy, then you should be able to trust me. Prophecy has one purpose, to tell you that you can trust your heavenly father. Because trust leads to intimacy. And so if you're looking at prophecy for knowledge, you're looking at it for the wrong thing. Prophecy is there to let you know we can trust what God says. And so when I look at Daniel and when I look at Revelation, when I look at all these prophecies, I don't get excited because like, oh my goodness, look at how cool that God has revealed the end times. I'm like, man, look at how much I can trust my God with my future. Does that make sense? The second thing I want to let you know while I'm still down the street is when it comes to these last days, why we need to hear and know and hold on to a word from God is because in these soon, very soon, difficult times I believe we're going to be living in, you ain't going to have no worship service, might not have your Bible, might not even see God move, but I'll tell you one thing that no one could ever take away from you, his word. Yeah, I don't mean simply his word in you opening up the Bible, but him literally speaking to you. And what we must be accustomed to as a people is learning how to hear the voice of God. And being able to differentiate between your own stuff, calling it his voice. Here's one thing how you know it's your, it's your voice or not. If the thing that you have been told to do is not happening the way that it's supposed to be happening... Here's what I mean by the way the thing's not supposed to be happening. You lay out how it's supposed to go to God, don't you? God, you're going to do this. He's going to be that way. She's going to look like this. My career's going to be like that. That ain't how God works. Sometimes he says, get up and move, and I'll show you as you go. See, some of us are in some stuff that ain't God. But you call into his voice to make you feel better about being in it. Some of you dating somebody. That ain't God. You're cute, but he ain't God. So how many of y'all believe that God's word is his action? How many of you believe that when God says it, if he says it's going to rain on Tuesday, get your umbrella on Monday? Y'all believe that God's word is true? Can you trust his word? Is it a guarantee that when God says it, it's going to take place? And if it doesn't take place, you must have misunderstood what he said. Y'all believe that? Now, I love to believe that when it comes to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you don't have room enough to receive. I love to believe that, that God's word comes through and it's true. Seeking you shall find, knocking the door shall be opened, asking it shall be given unto you. I love to know that God's word is true when it comes to the precious promises in scripture. But there's some other promises that we skip over that God said that are just as true. And here's what he says in John 16, verse 33. He says, in this world, you you will have tribulation. He also says in John, excuse me, in Luke 17 and verse 1, he makes it very clear. He says, stumbling blocks will come. 
Now, the problem, he says, make sure you're not the one who's causing someone else to stumble. But God is making something very clear through his word, which we just agreed that if he said it, it's a guarantee. God is making something very clear in this world. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you put your stuff together, no matter how nice your family is, you going to run into trouble. Stuff is going to happen. If you're in the church, if you're out of the church, if you're on planet Earth, God made us a promise that's just as sure as any other word we want to hold on to. He said, I want to tell y'all, if you're living on planet Earth, y'all are all going to go through something. And I'm not just talking about something in the last days, a time of trouble and tribulation. He said, there's going to be trouble. And here's the thing that blows my mind. Then if that is true and we say we believe in God's word, then why are we surprised when we go through stuff? Now, what do I mean by that? I get calls and texts, pastor, such and such is happening with this family in the church. Can you believe that? Yes. No, no, I need you all to hear me. I'm going somewhere with this. The truth of the matter is that there are some of us who are going to go through times in our lives where our children are not the people we thought they were going to be. Some of us right now are living in separate homes with our spouses. Because we're going through stuff. And we look at it like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's happened. And guess what? It is, because we're human. And God made something clear that we are going to stumble, that we are going to fall, that we are going to run into issues. And here's the thing. Some of those issues are directly our fault. Some of them, we can do everything right and still run into stuff. Some of you have taken your kids through church school. You have prayed over them. You've done everything, and they still have lost their minds. Because that is where we live, and that is where we are. And part of the problem with the church community is that we don't embrace the word of God that we're going to go through stuff. Because if we truly embraced it, we wouldn't be so surprised when people go through it. What's wrong with that church? Y'all got all that going on over there. Ain't nothing wrong because we going through life. And I'm going to tell you, we're going through life. And what the church unfortunately has created is a place where we have to pretend that John 16, doesn't actually happen. We pretend. Oh, no, no, I'm good. No, you're not. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Oh, everything's fine. No, it's not. It's a problem. And there's something happening in each of our lives. It might not be happening now, but live long enough. And the issue is, which is why I love where we're going with this series, is that if we all understood that, then we wouldn't look at each other's stuff as if we don't have stuff. I want you to look at those. Luke 17, John 16. Jesus makes it clear. There's stumbling blocks. They're there. They're everywhere. And you're going to stumble over the stumbling block. So the question is, here's the question. Here's where we're going. What do we do when the trouble comes? What's the solution when the stumbling block comes? When the thing comes in our lives that we, some we were prepared for, others we weren't prepared for, some was our own mess, our own doing, our own poor choices, some of it was just us being in life, but we're all going to go through something. And God says, 
I know that. And I'm ahead of you because I've got a solution. I've got several solutions. And here's the one that we want to push. I want you to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I want you to go to chapter four. Now, Ecclesiastes is a crazy book written by this dude by the name of Solomon. For those who don't know, Solomon, wisest man on earth. And let me tell you what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is Solomon being transparent. Ecclesiastes is Solomon not fronting, not acting like he had his life all together. But Ecclesiastes is Solomon doing something that is missing a lot of times from church, saying, hey, I have lived my life in this way. And here are the lessons I've learned from my life. Y'all not hearing this yet. See, Solomon didn't act like, oh, I've child of David, came from a broken home, but I'm still on the throne and I've been able to make it. God bless. No. Solomon's like, yo. I slept with over thousands of women, and some scholars might say included some men in my experimentation. And I've discovered this. After all the women and the sex and the money, it's vanity. He said it's nothing. He said it means nothing. And he says, and here's what I want you to do. Here's why I'm writing this book, he says. He says, I'm writing this book so that you can see that if you follow the same things I did, you'll come to the same conclusion. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Come to the conclusion from reading about my life and not doing it yourself. That's what he's saying. So Ecclesiastes is Solomon's life lessons. He'll tell you, drink a lot, this happens. Sleep around with a bunch of women, yeah, it feels good, but I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of that. You get so morally debased that you can't tell the difference anymore. You'll never have enough. Doing all this... Riches, man, please, got all that. And I use those riches to give up on my God and and connect with other people. Are y'all seeing this? Solomon's telling you. Watch out for this. But in Ecclesiastes, he also says, I've got some solutions to life's problems. He's like, I got some solutions because we're going to go through some stuff. And I've got some solutions to life problems, to some of life's problems. And I want you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 9. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9. We talked about we're all going to go through stuff. We're all going to have problems. What's the solution, he says? He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And then look what verse 10 says. For if either of them falls, if either of them does what? The one will lift up his companion. But watch this. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another. To lift him up. So I want you to look at what Solomon's saying. And we put all of it together because the Bible is a complete book that does not contradict itself. Jesus is saying, you're going to fall. There's going to be mistakes in things that happen in life. Solomon is saying, when that happens, you'll survive that best when you're surrounded by godly people. Solomon is saying, That if you want to make it through this life, you cannot do it outside of community. Here's what blows my mind about us. I didn't say you about us. We call ourselves a people of the book. And we will follow everything in this Bible to the letter. Diet, day of worship, prophetic utterances. But when it comes to being in a group, 
We don't want to hear what the word says about that. And the Bible is making something incredibly clear. We can't call ourselves a church if we don't have authentic community. An authentic community takes place in a group. I'm going to tell you this right now. Sabbath school ain't that kind of group. Hence the reason it's called Sabbath school. Because in school, I'm not doing life with folk. I'm learning lessons from a teacher. And there's a place for that. Because we're supposed to study the word together. But what this is talking about is a place where when life happens and we fall, I've got a group of people that are there to lift me up. And that's uncomfortable. Because in order for me to be picked up, I have to let someone see me fall. And I can tell you this right now. There are some marriages that would be saved if you were in a group. Because you would have caught the issue before it became an issue. But when we isolate ourselves and keep to the people that we just know, and we don't genuinely do life together, we end up alone. And then when John 16, happens, we stumble away from God. Because I'm going to tell you this, it's easy to stumble away from a building. It's harder to stumble away from community. And so I got three things I'm going to share with you very quickly because I, I'm beyond passionate about this because as I look throughout scripture, we preach, we just preach brother life, right? Y'all remember that? Yeah. Dr. Bird just preached here. His daughter's here with the MITS program. Good to see you. Good to see you. We quote this text every time in our evangelistic effort. Quote this every single time. Luke chapter 4, where Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And you know why we quote it? Because we're supposed to follow whose example? Jesus. We follow his example. Jesus had a small group. And he was with them all day. Now, I ain't asking us to do that. But if we're following the example of Jesus, then guess what we should have? What should we have? A group. Now, I'm going to tell you two things very quickly. Adventists, for some reason, have a hard time with this. I know not everyone under here is Adventists. We got a hard time with groups. And then number two, black folk got a hard time with groups. Now... Y'all know I'm black all year long, so I'm going to throw some black history on this real quick. It's ridiculous that blacks don't have small groups. Because in slavery, what do, you, what do you think we had? We had small groups that got together, planned, executed, did life together. And what the master didn't like was the fact that we were together. And so he created this, this thing in us where we don't like to do life together anymore. That in us. And now our togetherness is just the cookouts. That's not how we work. That's not how we work. 
So there's just three things very quickly that I want to show you when it comes to Jesus and he comes with these small groups. And, and here's what we want to do. The first thing that, that, that we did that Jesus does is he engages. What does he do, everybody? He engages. What does he do? He engages. He goes up to his disciples. He wakes up in the morning. He engages them and says, hey, I want you guys to be with me. I want you guys to, to be with me. You know, uh, Andrew, you know, James, John, uh, Peter, I want you guys to be with me. Come with me. He engages them to be a part of his group. He wants them to do life together. So much so, he says, leave everything behind and come with me. What are we doing as a church? We are engaging you to be a part of a small group. How are we engaging you? Sign up for Lifeline right outside. Yes, this is a plug for that because this is what we need to do. And Jesus engaged them. He said, I want you to be a part of this group. And that's what we're going to do through our lifeline. We're going to engage people and say, you know what? I want to do life together with you. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about the group that Jesus engaged with. He engaged with a group of people that were quite different than himself, didn't he? So when it comes to the group, the group can be similar to you. It can be different than you. But here's the thing that you're going to find, that when you engage that group, y'all should have one purpose, and that is to grow in Christ together. And each of those different people have different walks, and they have different issues that they're bringing. Can you look at Jesus' small group, y'all? Gangbangers, murderers, liars, doubters, thieves. That was who was in his small group. He didn't simply have a group of people that had all their life together. He had a group of people that were trying to get it together. And so let me warn you something about your small group, because I, I, I'm not pushing this to you guys unless I've done it myself. I've had a small group. I'm in a small group. I'm working in a small group. That group has been life to me. And guess what? I'm going to tell you something about my small group. We all got issues. We all got problems. And let me tell you inevitably what's going to happen. There have been people, yo, we family. There have been people in the church who've talked about the problems my small group has. Look at all them people with all them problems. Yep, that's why we're in the same group. Because we got issues. And we're trying to grow in Christ together. And we know that just talking about our issues over the phone or singing a song over or sending a cute little text ain't enough. We got to be in each other's business. And that's why the second thing that Jesus does with this group is he exchanges. He exchanges with them. They exchange with one another. They exchange what's going on in their life. I think I should be the greatest. No, you should be the greatest. Hey, who do men say that I am? Uh, you don't know? Jesus will never let you go ahead and go to the cross. And look at how comfortable Jesus is in the group. He gets at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, I'm calling you out because if I don't deal with your mess here, it's going to blow up into something else. And in our small groups, that's what we want to do. And that's why it's different than Sabbath school. Because in Sabbath school, we have a lesson that we're going through and we're talking about. And that's great. And we're exegeting the word of God. But Sabbath school is not the place when there's a whole room full of people to say, "Uh, excuse me, teacher, can we talk about, I was looking at porn three times this week. Um, You know what? I'm not even sleeping in the same bed as my wife anymore. But in your group, you need to say that. Because in my group, when I'm exchanging what's taking place in my life, now I've added something to my life that is a game changer, accountability. Hey, dude, you said you weren't sleeping in bed with your wife this last week. Where are you at in that? Man, we still haven't. We still haven't. Why not? Is it self? What's going on, bro? Let's talk through this. Let's go through this. And so you get to problems before they become issues. 
And I'm listening because some of you guys have come to me and we're praying through stuff. And I'm sitting here saying to myself, if you had a group around you, this thing would have been nipped in the bud. Be able to exchange. I'm struggling here. I'm doing this here. And I trust you with that information. And one of the greatest exchanges I think I've seen with Jesus' small group is when he's getting ready to go to the cross. And he's so vulnerable with his people. He says, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm going to try and get out of this thing called the cross. So can y'all just watch with me? Watch with me. And all of us need a group that we can exchange with. And I'm going to tell you this. If you're sitting here listening to the sermon right now, I'm going to be bold enough and say this. And you don't think you need that, that is Laodicean arrogance in your life right now. If you don't think you need somebody else in your life, to pour into you, to run things by you, to hold you accountable, then that is Laodicean arrogance, where you think you are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. We all need it. We all need it. And that's why I'm going to tell you this right now, and we have some musicians to come out and play. I need people in my life who are going to keep it 100 with me. I need people who care about me more than they care about my friendship. And I need people who aren't going to kick the typical pastor lingo to me. Hence the reason my small group ain't got no pastors. Because I need them to be like, dude, I ain't, please don't give me that pastor talk. That's crap, Mike. And they're not afraid to say it. And you need people in your life that care more about you than they do your friendship to you. Last thing. Then the last thing that the group does that Jesus had them do is execute. James chapter 1 says very clearly that we are not to be hearers of the word. We're to be what? Doers of the word. We've got to apply the things that we've heard. We've got to apply the things that we've heard. And what happens in that small group is after we've exchanged things, we're then able to leave that group and say, how are we going to apply this to our everyday lives? How am I going to apply this to our everyday life? How am I going to apply these principles that we just talked about, about being a better husband, being a better father, about my pornography addiction or my drug addiction, my alcohol addiction, my my, my issues in life? How am I going to be able to apply that? And we leave and we execute. And then I come back to that group and we talk about what it was like. How do we know? Jesus met with a small group. He gave them power over unclean spirits. They went out and casted out devils. And then Jesus called them back to hear how it went. How'd it go? how things happen? And that's what I want for us. I want for us to engage. I want for us to exchange. And I want for us to execute. Because I think we can be more than what we are. I think we can be better than what we are. I think there's stuff we're going through that we're going to go through that we don't have to go through alone that we can go through together. And I'm going to tell you this. Your spouse can't be your accountability partner in certain things. Your spouse cannot be your accountability partner in certain things. You need somebody else. You need somebody else who's going to call you on your stuff. And I believe there's a group setting to be able to do that. 